Log Talk Radio. Calling all men. It's now your time for your show with your coach, the Men's Advocate Show with Linda Gross. Relax, be heard, and be understood. It's the show where men can be men. Now here's the coach who has your back, Linda Gross. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Men's Advocate Show with me, your host, Linda Gross. I am pumped up to tell you about today's show. We're going to be joined by my guest today, who is Jeremy Ryan Slate. He is the host of Create Your Own Life Podcast, which showcases the highest performers in the world. He studied literature at Oxford University. I want to ask him about that later, as well as holding a master's degree from Seton Hall University. His podcast was named the number one podcast to listen to by Inc. Magazine in 2019, as well as being recognized as the top 40 under 40 by podcast magazine. So we're going to talk a little bit about his podcast and how he promotes your brand by the use of podcasting, right? This and a whole lot more. Welcome, Jeremy, to the show. So nice to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to get a chance to to hang out and, and add some value today. The topic that caught my attention, Jeremy, how to make your business recession proof. How did you discover these ideas and tell our audience a little bit more about that. Oh, before I get get into that, my audience, if you're listening live, call into the show with your comments or questions. The call-in number is 323-642-1677, 323-642-1677, or you can use the chat line right here at blogtalkradio.com, blogtalkradio.com, forward slash DT Linda Gross, forward slash DT Linda Gross. Go for it, Jeremy. How did you come upon this idea of making your business recession-proof? I think the one thing that we have to always think about is, number one, you always have to be promoting yourself. And I think a lot of times people aren't thinking about promoting their business until something really bad happens, right? You get a bad review or you hear something negative. And frankly, if I was down to my last dollar, I would spend it on public relations. You have to really get people to understand you, know you, like you, and trust you. And I think people have a big confusion on what that word means when they hear public relations. It doesn't mean the public as a whole or as a broad public. Public is actually a specialized term that means a type of audience. Your public could be doctors, or in this case, it could be men. A public is the type of people that you're trying to speak to and approach. So for me, you should always be creating trust, whether it's being involved in your community, whether it's teaching in different areas, whether it's connecting with the right people, it comes down to public relations. That's the first thing that we were always concentrating on, being involved in our community. We do a lot with charity programs. Literacy is really, really important to me because if we don't have literacy, we don't have anything. But also the other thing we've really concentrated on are building systems and having the right staff. So Everything in my company, when we look at like different job descriptions, right? we have a write-up for each job, and in that job, it's every single thing you could ever need to know about doing that position. So, for example, one of the main positions at my company is the publicist position, somebody that works with booking podcasts. That write-up is 47 pages. It's everything you could ever <laughs> need to know about doing that job. So when somebody yeah. takes that job, everything that could ever happen or has happened up to that point is documented. So that way, when somebody comes into a position, they know exactly what they have to do. So for us, it's promoting yourself and getting seen and heard and creating trust, hiring the right people, but also building systems because so often people are built on a tactic rather than a long-term strategy. Gotcha. And then that way, if you ever have to replace that person or add a second person in that same kind of position, you already have the manuals. It's a really good document to have. <laughs> yeah, and it's a scary thing if you don't, Linda, for the, for the reason of like early on in our first couple of years in business, we didn't have things documented that well. And I'm talking like 2015, 2016. And yeah. we're looking to move on from somebody at that point in time, but we couldn't because we didn't have things documented well enough in order to replace them. So it is vital because otherwise your effect rather than being causative. 
Right. And much like McDonald's, where you're making French fries in location one or location 1000, you want the taste and look and feel of that French fry to be the same in all of your stores. So I think if you have a manual or a document, a protocol that you use, I think it's good because it's a reflection on your brand and you do want to make it consistent throughout your company. So really good thing to have. (laughs) I like that. So, so many businesses start up. The statistics show that within the first two years, 90% of businesses fail. So forget about the recession, but they just fail on their own. So how does one make it past that two-year mark? And then how do you get to a point where people need you? You're not going to be canceled because they actually need your product or service. How do you get from that to that? Well, I think as a business owner, one of the things you really have to do, because I think often we tend to approach things as we know everything about everything. And that's kind of one of the major stumbling blocks when you first start your business. So for me, it was understanding I'm looking at things with new eyes every time I see them. So it's how can I learn more and how can I get better at different things? And you have to be honest with yourself, right? I think a lot of us don't see our blind spots. So for me, it was knowing what things am I good at, what things am I not good at, and how can I improve on those? Because if you don't, those things will eat you alive in your first couple of years in business. Frankly, first version of our business, we had another partner, and I didn't know much about partnerships. So we jumped right in. We made some agreements we shouldn't have made. And nine months in, we basically came to a situation where we're like, okay, so what do we do about this? Because you want to go that way, I want to go that way, and there's employees involved. So to me, you really have to continue to grow and understand and see where your weak areas are and improve at them. And for me, I'm in business with my wife, and she's one of the smartest people I know. And frankly, she's really good where I'm really bad. And I think it's oh, I important to have somebody that complements your skill set. I'm more of the like, big think, visionary, I have this big mess, can you figure this out for me type of person. Whereas she's an implementer, she's an operations person, she knows how to create things that flow well. So I think you have to really have people that complement your skills whether it's in the C-suite or whether it's in the people you're hiring, because Mm -hmm. it can really put you in a position, especially early on, where a lot of your weaknesses can really get exposed. And and I'll say as well, Linda, like the thing that really stops most people in those first two years is not selling enough. You have to be able to sell enough, fast enough to survive and manage to start putting away reserves. Otherwise, you're not going to make it through, right? Because the economy changes, as we've seen, especially in the last couple of years with inflation gone wild and things like that. So you have to really have the right skills, the right people around you, as well as sell faster and have set aside. Love that. The complimentary thing, I think one of the mistakes that entrepreneurs make when they're first starting out is they try to wear all 10 hats. Mm -hmm. And that only lasts you for so long. (laughs) And then you experience burnout, you're just overwhelmed, and you just run into trouble. But eventually, best way to handle things is know what your strengths are and try to be present in those strengths 80% of the time. And there are other people in your organization, or if they're not, you should hire them or be partners with them, as you say, but they should be doing the areas that you're not good at or that you Mm -hmm. don't like. So if you have one person that's great at accounting and the other person is great at sales, great, because you have two totally different skill sets. Both are needed for the development and progress of the company, but don't spend your time in doing areas that you're not good at. Just quit the, I'm trying to do it all routine because that doesn't work too well. Can I add two things to that too? Because I think two and real, a couple of really important things about that as well is I think a lot of us tend to surround ourselves with yes people, if that makes sense. And you have to tell people, you have to have people around you that are sometimes willing to tell you that your plan stinks. Because if you don't, you're going to get your weaknesses exposed fast and not have the help in order to fix them. So I think it's important to surround yourself with people that are also well, then you confront you sometimes and tell you when your plan kind of stinks is, is, is one part of it, as well as it's also important to have time to work on your business rather than in it. Because I will tell you that is something a lot of business owner friends I have suffer from is there's so much tied to the production of their business mm-hmm. that they can't actually build the systems. They can't fix quality control. They can't put things in. They can't adopt new things because they're so tied to daily operations. So even if it's putting an hour aside a week where you're going to actually work on your business rather than in it, That is one of the single biggest mistakes people make in not making time for that. Gotcha. A moment ago, you mentioned literacy. So there's, what, 273 countries in the world, and the U.S. 
for education is number 50. So when you say literacy, why is that so important and why are we so far down on that list? Well, well, that's actually two questions. So yeah. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer that. Why are we so far down on the list first? Because yeah. so when you look at the American education system, we're actually based off the Austro-Hungarian model. So that came out of around the early 1900s, and it kind of mixed with the U.S. Industrial Revolution. So what we were looking for during that time was soldiers, because we had the First World War, and we were looking at people to work in factories. So our literacy rate isn't super high because we weren't looking for people to start businesses or do these other things. We created an education system around fixing that. And so to me, I think our education system as a whole needs a total revamp and looking at like application, because application is one of the biggest things missing in school. But if we're looking at literacy globally, I think if you are literate and you have the ability to read and you have the ability to use that, you actually have the world open up to you. And I think for a lot of people not having that, that is the biggest thing that could be closed off to you is starting a business or meeting the right people or connecting with the right people. If you don't have literacy, you don't really have access to do anything. So I think it really is kind of two unique problems, one being our system is flawed in the way it's built and we kind of need an overhaul. And I think the other thing is like literacy, the door needs to be open. Right. It seems like literacy is going on the wrong <laughs> it's on the wrong train track going the wrong way these past few years. It's well, and I'm worried about what worse. <laughs> I'm I'm worried about what AI is going to do for yet, that Linda. Because I I don't know if you've seen this Google for G Suite now they've started adding AI to email writing, which terrifies me by the way because I can see it being helpful, but like we're going to lose literacy then if people don't have to create sentence structure on their own, work on their grammar on their own. Like sure it's great to have spell check, but if everything if if a software program is just going to write for you, then people don't have a need to actually possess language. And that's kind of dangerous, too. Yeah, I know. I, I worry about that also. <laughs> I had a millennial neighbor of mine, and she was asking me, she goes, Linda, how do you use a bar of soap? I, I guess, like in her generation, they're only used to liquid soap and, you know, in the shower or, you know, at a restaurant, you go to the bathroom, it's, you put your hands underneath the, the faucet there and it automatically comes out. It's all liquid soap. And she literally was dumbfounded. She's, you know, my grandma has this bar of soap. How do you use that? How do you make the bubbles come out? And I'm like, oh, my God. So, yeah, apparently they haven't used soap in my house because my <laughs> wife's one of those people that, like, she'll buy this, like, special bar of soap made at a monitor or something like that. So bar soap is all we use. Oh, great. Three monks chanted upon it, and you're getting a good juju from that. But yeah, you know, I, I guess they were criticizing spell check and grammar check, you know, for Microsoft Word back in the day that, oh, you know, it's going to create a generation of people who can't read or do grammar well. But I don't know. I, I guess it has it, it, its pros and cons. So this is that on crack 10 times that with the AI that we're going to get to a point where we don't have to do any thinking or any discernment whatsoever. So it's kind of a scary thought. I was reading the other day that only 12%, and this is just probably a big number. I think it's probably even less than that. Only 12% of the public knows how to use logic and reasoning. Wow. And I was like, Wow, no wonder everybody is a sheep. I mean, it's pretty crazy. So if you've got the literacy and you've got the ability to use logic and reasoning, I mean, you're like 100 times ahead of the game. Well, that was one of my favorite courses in college. Um, I actually took logic in college. You learn how to analyze a problem. You learn how to take a look at different things and see what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. And I think far too often that's one of the biggest things we're missing, right? To look at a problem and analyze yeah. it and realize, okay, so if these two things happen, then this thing is going to happen. And when you, you can't do that, like you can't make correct financial decisions. You can't make decisions on like who your friends should be. You can't make decisions on like who should you vote for. Like these are all like really important things to just surviving as a human being. So like to me, I think it goes back to what I said about education. I, I think we need to be, there's like core things that we need to be learning. You know, you need to know the right type of math. You need, to know, you need to know your history. We're going to do the same things wrong over again and miss the right. things that are right that we should be doing. But also logic. You need to learn to think correctly and how to analyze something. And also ethics because people need to be looking at the wrong and rightness of their decisions when, when they're actually doing something. Absolutely. It seems like all of those traits have gone out the window lately. We have people who are shopping rob and doing all that stuff today and no consequences, no penalties. So it seems like we've strayed in the ethics department as well. So 
it's just all a big mess. <laughs> but ethics is an interesting thing, though, because I think when it, ethics is, is is something that's uniquely personal, right? Like, you know, what you believe yeah. is right and wrong, what you, how you're raised and, and what it may be. But at the same time, ethics is also a group thing, right? Because the members of a group, you know, in this case, maybe it's a country or a state, whatever it may be, we're also responsible for keeping the ethics of our group members in, right? Like making sure right. all the people we know are behaving. So. The problem is a lot of people don't want to take either personal responsibility or group responsibility, and those are two really important things. Absolutely. We need to bring that back. <laughs> I fully agree. By the way, my listeners, if you've just joined us, you're currently listening to the Men's Advocate Show with me, your host, Linda Gross. We're on today with my guest, Jeremy Ryan Slate. He is the creator of Create Your Own Life podcast. And we're talking about this and a whole host of other things. So if you have any questions for him when we get back from the break, call us at 323-642-1677, 323-642-1677, and we're going to catch you right back after the break. Hey guys, do you have a nagging problem that you just can't get a handle on? Now you can talk to an expert coach right in the privacy of your own home. Meet in person, over the phone, or with a free Skype call anywhere in the world. Linda is here to make it easy for you. Linda Gross has done years of academic research combined with interviewing over 20,000 men. Linda's expert advice gets you through tackling relationship issues, business goals, conflict resolution, and removing lifetime roadblocks that have kept you back, usually handled in four sessions or less. Realize the benefits now. Go to the Men's Advocate page slash coaching and you'll be on your way. That's themensadvocate.com slash coaching. Darn, maybe you missed part of this show. Maybe you're still at work during the show. Maybe you heard the show but would like to listen again. Your problems are easily solved. Listen to any and all of Linda's archived shows at your convenience. Just Google SoundCloud, The Men's Advocate. That's Google SoundCloud, The Men's Advocate. The on-demand library is also available on the TuneIn app. Subscribe now and please share with your friends. Welcome back, everybody. You're currently listening to the Men's Advocate Show with me, your host, Linda Gross. We're on with my guest today, Jeremy Ryan Slate. By the way, he happens to have a website, commandyourbrand.com, commandyourbrand.com, and his clients have been featured on over 5,500 top podcasts. So if you are searching around for a way to reach your next prospective customer, he says, do it through their ear. (laughs) Okay, Jeremy, tell our audience how our business owners and CEOs can reach new clients through podcasting. Well, I think it's kind of interesting because we're in this really interesting point in time, right? Like we've, we've seen legacy media for the last, gosh, like 80 to 100 years. And legacy media, I mean like TV, radio, newspapers, and we're seeing newspapers going out of print. We're seeing TV ratings are going down. And the user is changing immensely. They want to watch Netflix. They want to watch Prime. They want to watch podcasts. So we're moving to this kind of on-demand, listener-driven economy. So Mm -hmm. the business owners and influencers and people that take advantage of this economy, they actually have the ability to become kind of the next generation of icons. Because when you look at it, whether it be in times of war or in times of trouble, we've heard voices and seen people come to us via these forms of media. And what's really going to happen now is as these old sources of media are going away and the new sources of media are coming in, podcasting and what I like to call new media, so that's things like YouTube, Rumble, a lot of those video platforms out there are starting to fill that space. And the interesting thing about that is their listenership is something we know a lot more about because TV and radio and things like that, they've guessed. They don't 100% know what their listener base is. They have formulas and things like that. But since this is all digital, everything's tracked and we know according to what Apple podcast study said two years ago, listeners finish 80% of an episode. So we see people really being sucked into this type of media and it's things they're choosing. So when you're a brand, the way you can really benefit from this is is two different ways. The, The first way is having 
your own podcast if you're a fit for that, right? Because not everybody's a fit for, for having their own podcast because if right. you, you struggle in conversation and things like that, it, it may not be the right thing for you to have. But the reason I say it's important to have a podcast is because the user doesn't really want to read blogs and things like that anymore. They want to watch videos and they want to be spoken to. So it allows you to become the content hub for people to come to to get advice, to learn from you, and for you to also get positioning. Now, what I mean by positioning is this is a concept in, in branding of people are objects you're seen for or against. So the best example and the worst example of this is people like to say, our company is the Uber of blank, right? Because people know what Uber is, so they're trying to grab that positioning in someone's mind. So when you interview people or talk on certain topics, you're creating positioning for yourself or your brand. So that's creating credibility and a spot in someone's mind where they're going to remember you. So that's the real value to having your own show. But the other side of it is actually going to other podcasts as a guest because you're building relationships, which is the number one reason, frankly, I like to go on podcasts is I meet lots of really cool people like yourself. But you're also getting exposed to brand new audiences that may be interested in what you have to teach. So I just think with where we are in media right now, there is no better opportunity than kind of getting exposed to this, what I like to call new media landscape. Gotcha. I've been doing podcasting since 2015, old school, and I started in radio and and then spun off onto my own podcast. But right now we're seeing an avalanche of people who are already famous. They're already movie stars. They're already TV stars or what have you. And they're all starting their podcasting businesses. Tell us about that. Why is this trend occurring? Why are people who are in other forms of media all jumping on the podcasting bandwagon. Well, I guess there's a, there's a couple different things about around this and, and how somebody that already has an audience and is famous is going to do it versus you know the rest of us and how we're going to do it is, is a little bit different. But when you're looking at that, um, number one, part of it just has to go with contracts. The way the old contracts are written for a lot of these media companies, they actually don't own podcasting the way because the contracts were written 10, 15 years ago. So they aren't considering new media. So they aren't considering owning a lot of these things. So what it's doing is allowing a lot of these large, well-known creators to make money off their brand in a way that their contract doesn't cover and stop them from. So it is one thing that's really allowed them to um, monetize that way. And at the same way, same time, we've really gotten to this world of where the personal brand matters so much more. So they want to have people come to them and learn from them. We've seen this happen with comedians and, and, and actors and people like that. So how it works for them is different than how it works for the everyday person because they can go really broad and, and reach a lot of different people because they're already well-known. For the rest of us, if you're really going to start um, a podcaster or something in that sphere, to me the best way to start and what I've seen work best for people is starting extremely niche talking on a subject that maybe doesn't have a big audience because the reason is you can build notoriety within that niche and build out from that. And, and that's really what I've seen be successful because it, this is one of the best ways to build a personal brand. Gotcha. The way I started in the beginning is I just went on a ton of other people's podcasts. You're siphoning off their audience. So it's an audience that's not familiar with what you're doing but you can piggyback off of their audience, and hopefully some of those people will eventually come to you like, oh, I like what Linda or Jeremy is saying. Maybe I'll check out their podcast. So it kind of comes around, does come around. And it's frankly, I think why a lot of authors have really used the podcast tour as kind of the new media tour because it's really one of the best ways to get books seen and get books sold as well. Right. Um, because like you said, it's, it's so different from the perspective of like if you do a radio spot, you know, you're lucky if you get – half an hour as a guest or a TV spot. You're lucky if you get yeah. five minutes a guest. Four minutes, yeah. Yeah, like, but on <laughs> podcasts, like, they're very fast. Podcasts are, people are really getting to know you because you're spending a half an hour, an hour. Um, some podcasts, you know, two or three hours. I, I listened to a, a, a podcast that, uh, it's not a guest show, but it's called the Hardcore History Podcast, and his episode are six hours. So, you know, people are really wow. getting to know you like you and trust you. Wow, six hours. Wow. Is there an optimal uh, time frame that people are listening to? I, I keep hearing the short podcast, the short podcast, but I mean, my show is an hour long, but apparently that's long in, <laughs> in dog years, right? So is there an optimal amount of time that one should broadcast for? I've always heard people say 30 minutes is kind of the optimal time because it's a commute or something like that. But, but Linda, I'll be honest with you. I've been doing this just as long as you, ha you have since like 2014, 2015. And like we started shorter and my episodes have gotten longer and I'm doing less of them. You know, like I used to do five episodes a week and do 20 to 30 minutes. And, and what I've really found is people are dying for not 
a swath of content because there's 3 million podcasts out there and there's a lot of content out there. Mm-hmm. They're actually dying for better content. And my show has grown more as I've went down to two episodes a week and gone down to 45 minutes to an hour and a half for my episodes because then they're really diving into a subject, really learning about the subject. Um, and frankly, I can only tell you what's worked for me because the, the industry says do shorter. I don't agree with that. I've personally seen longer <laughs> and deeper, longer, deeper, and less be better for me. Yeah. And I think it's good to, you know, take a specific uh, topic and target that. The type of podcast that bores me to death is when the host has no agenda. It's just random talk about whatever the current news events. When he woke up at 6 o'clock this morning, there's four important events, and that's what they're talking about. It's so boring, and it's so overdone. But if it's a topic that really interests me, I will spend two hours with that podcaster. So I'm so tired of there's no topic and I'm just going to do a random show. I hate that. I think also like the thing that, that I've kind of observed as well is like traditional radio moving into podcasting also hasn't really seemed to do as well, right? Because it's more of like segment type shows, whereas mm-hmm. people come to podcasts for something special and unique, that long form conversation or informational thing. That's why, like, I just haven't seen, unless it's been um, like this American life sure has been great in podcasts, but like, typical NPR stuff that they put in the podcast haven't really done as well because it's just, it's a different format. And that's why I think we're seeing it go more towards a long form conversation. We're really getting in depth with people. And I think if those companies can start to change more to that, they're going to start to see some successes as well. Not that they haven't seen it, but I think the type of success they've seen in their, their other platforms. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what are the, some of the pitfalls to look for when um, a new person is starting a, a podcast? So I would say the number one thing is expectations. A lot mm-hmm. of people start out with the wrong expectations when they're starting a podcast. They think that they're going to be famous in seven days. They think that <laughs> pe- people want to hear them talk to their best friends about things that they would talk about around the dinner table or around a beer, and that just isn't the case. Mm-hmm. So when, to me, if you want to be successful in podcasting, you have to be willing to commit to it for six months to a year and not look for a return on that. Because you're, you're going to really get better at your art, you're going to start to build an audience, and you're going to be in it for the right reasons. But I think far too often people start it for, I need to return right away, I need to get this number of leads, I need to get this number of clients. And when you have those expectations early on, you're not going to look at becoming a better conversationalist, putting together better content, helping people, learning what's needed and wanted from your audience. Like These are all things that are vitally important. So that's the first thing I would say is having the right expectations of be willing to be in this for six months to a year and not make a dollar off it. I know it's, it might be stupid to say that, but like, I think that viewpoint works well and it worked well for me. The other thing I would say is, as well is work on, if you're going to do an interview show, really work on your skills as an interviewer. So I've looked at people I really admire as interviewers and see what they do. Um, you know, like Larry King or Oprah or people like that. And I've, and, and you want to learn those skills as an interviewer. Um, I, th- I think a lot of people over-prepare with writing that first question, when in actuality, the real value in a question is learning how to listen to somebody, see what was said, and come up with the best follow-ups. Those are the best conversationalists do. So learn how to do that type of thing. Also, preparation for me is a really big deal as well, Linda. And mm-hmm. what I mean by that is you can prepare for a conversation better if you know what that person you're going to speak to is like. Yeah. From a communication perspective, because some people answer long, some people answer short, some people need less prompting, some people need more prompting. So I listen to 10, 15, sometimes a half an hour uh, of someone's other interviews so that I can just see how they communicate. Because if you can enter into that conversation knowing someone's communication style, you can be a lot more in control as a person running that conversation. So to me, I think those are the things that are most vital when everybody else is worried about traffic and downloads and all these other things. But if you can get better at the content you're creating and how you're running things, those other things will happen for you. Yeah, I love that. I love the preparation thing. I've always had the motto, whether it's in podcasting or in business in general, I always come to the table like 
I try to at least, uh, 110% or 115%. And I figure that extra 15%, if I don't need it, if it doesn't come up, it's fine with me. But mm -hmm. you know what? Every once in a while, you do need that extra piece of information. And then you just come across as, oh, my gosh, this person really is an expert or really does know what they're talking about. Or it ups your credibility factor or whatever because you're going outside the dotted lines, right? So, yeah, preparation is, is a big deal. Doesn't well, always have to be used, but it's a big deal. And also, like when you're when you're asking questions, like thinking through the the, the viewpoint of uh, like feel felt, you know, found. Like, how did you feel when, or what did you what did you do when you found? Like, you want to you want to ask questions that have people really describe things in depth. You know, yeah. not things people can give a yes or no or a short answer to because you can really learn about something if you learn how to ask a better question and think about, you know, like asking people about feelings, asking people about experiences, memories. Like you really want to kind of dig into that and learn how to ask a better question. Awesome. And then you were talking in the beginning about the long game, like give it a, give it a year. I think I'll also let's throw in consistency that yes. you have. I mean, if your day is Wednesday at 3 o'clock, then try to always make it. I mean, sometimes you got to move it Wednesday at 2 o'clock. Okay, I get that. Sometimes you have a dentist appointment, you got to move it Thursday at 3 o'clock or whatever. But try to be as consistent as possible because that way your audience can look forward to, oh, it's that time slot. I might not be able to listen to it live, but at least they know they have that opportunity if the time presents itself. And it's also an agreement with your audience, right? Like, sure, we've changed episode frequency and things like that, but not without notice to my audience because okay. we haven't missed an episode in eight years. And, you know, when wow. you look at that, like, it's an agreement with your audience that they know when they can count on it, when they can get it, and when they can find it. Um, and if you're going to make some, some changes, give them a month's notice. Like, hey, guys, I want to let you know next month we're changing to two days a week, and this is why. Because you, you want to keep people in the loop of what's going on so they feel like they're a part of something and they also know they can trust you. Gotcha. Because when you start, baking the you start breaking the basic promise of what your content calendar is, um, you, you're breaking your audience's trust in you. And, and frankly, running a content calendar is vital as well. We have a running spreadsheet where we know, you know a month from now what are our episodes going to look like. And I think a lot of people aren't thinking of that. You need to be running a content calendar of what's happening um, are we doing a theme this month or this week or whatever it may be? Those things need to be considered because you're running a show and, and you have to create a show that's going to be not only interesting but also entertaining to the people listening to you. Right. Also in the long game, give it a year that you were saying, then you have a chance to do the post-show analysis. You can look at the analytics and say, oh, my gosh, I didn't think anything of this topic, and it got really good ratings or it got yeah. a lot of views or whatever, or vice versa. So you can, in the future, plan, like, this went really successfully. I'm going to do more of that. I'm going to do the spin-off version of whatever the good things were and, you know, avoid the pitfalls from the shows that didn't do too well. Well, and, and analyze why not. <laughs> well, and also I'm curious your experience in this, Linda. Like, for me, like, also finding my voice took a long time. What I, what I mean by that is how I communicate, how I talk to people, how I run a show. Like we've done 1,300 episodes at this point, and, and it took me 500 to feel like I knew what my voice was. Like, was that something wow. for you that you were like working on finding your voice, or did it just come naturally for you? Well, you know, way back in the day, I wrote a daily blog, Monday through Friday. So that was the precursor to writing the book, and then the book was a precursor to the podcast. So I think I probably found my voice on that blog, because I mean, writing every single day for a few years, that kind of did it. So, but yeah, I can understand. It, it takes quite a few episodes, and in my case, it was quite a few, um, you know, blogs that I wrote that got it to that point. But yeah, it all takes time. I know we all hate the time, and we don't want to say it's going to take a year uh, to get there, or sometimes two years, three years, depending on the person, depending on the person's background. But it is what it is, and that's what it takes. I mean, you'll eventually get there. And if not, then look to your peers. Look to people who that, whom you look up to. And if it is a Oprah or Larry King, what are they doing differently that maybe I can pick and choose some of their attributes and make it my own? Mm -hmm. No, I, I think that's really, really important because it's discouraging to people, and I, I don't think it should be, but they say, how do you 
get to be a better podcast host. And it's like, do a lot of podcasts, do a lot of them, have yeah, a lot of conversations. <laughs> I mean, what do they say in outliers? Um, it, it takes 10,000 hours to be an expert. So if you practice something one hour a week, that's great. But if you practice it one hour a day, you're going to get to that 10,000 number a whole heck of a lot faster. So yeah, just keep doing more of it and look up to the people that you really want to emulate and kind of take it from there. And aside from that, along with the literacy thing, how do you get better at reading? You read more books. <laughs> you do more well, And reading, more challenging right? books, right? Like more right? challenging books. I think that's a really important thing as well is I think oftentimes and we're not up for a challenge. And if yeah. you want to improve, you have to do things that are hard, difficult, and sometimes impossible. Um, and for me, like – I was reading Tom Clancy books at 10 years old because like, you know, doing things like that and challenging yourself is what makes you better. So to me, that's, that's always important as well. Wow. Okay. So now that we're talking about education, how did you get into Oxford? <laughs> was so, it something uh, that you applied to or they sought you out or how did that work? So it was actually through a program through my university. So I went to, to Seton Hall University for undergrad and then they actually run a program uh, through Oxford that I ended up going there for, for Catholic social literature. So I did things like um, I studied the works of G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, um, and different things like that. I actually stayed at C.S. Lewis's house for a little bit, which was kind of cool. So that's how I ended up going there was through a program through my university where I was able to enroll in there for a while and then come back and actually do my master's degree when I got back. So that, that was how I got there. Wow. And you spent, what, a year there or? It was like a year program to studying literature, which was kind of cool because it's for me, I'm, I've, reading's always been an important part of, of what I've done and writing's always been an important part of that as well. So I was reading a lot of Chesterton and Lewis and, and things like that and, and also going to a lot of really interesting places as well, which is which is not yeah. something we don't have the type of history here in the US that they do in Europe because it's been around just so much longer. Yeah. So what would you say to the young kid, somebody who's a teenager that doesn't have that Oxford education, what can they do in their own backyard? So to me, I have two daughters. They're, they're two and four. And um, my four-year-old, is her favorite thing to do is read books. And wow. I would, say, I would say, thank you, I would say the most important thing is, is to find a love of reading. And it doesn't mean that, you know, maybe early in life I struggled with Shakespeare. And it was something that I actually got suspended from school for saying that I hate Shakespeare. Um, because I struggled with Old English, right? So I think one of the things that you have to do is, is find what you like to read. And you'll find when you find things that you like to read and you can really go into that, you're going to find you like other things you thought you may not have liked. So to me, it's finding things you like to read and exploring that. One of the things um, that my parents started me on, um, gosh, super young was the Hardy Boys. And that was something I really enjoyed. And that got me in love with reading. So find out what it wow. is for you and explore that. Um, and you'll find that, you know, that's going to help your logic, as we were talking about earlier, and your way of thinking, you're also gonna, it's also going to help you to problem solve and things like that. Um, but reading and the love of reading is something that can just guide you so much in life. So I would say find what you like to read and explore that because I'll tell you what, um, if reading's always been like, oh, they're making me read this or they're making me read that or whatever it may be, it's more of a, you know, an effect viewpoint where mm -hmm. you can be causative if you're picking things to read that you choose to read. Gotcha. I think I think it's important to even turn the clock back earlier than that. So with your young ones, as the parent, read them a bedtime story every day. I mean, I, I did that with my daughter until she was about five years old. And of course, there were nights where I was tired. I, I was cranky. I didn't want to do it. But Without fail, I read to her every day for five years. So then they grow up like that's the norm. That's their yeah. new standard, right? So that mm -hmm. later on they can say, well, I like those books that mom read, but let me explore this other part of the library. What else can I dive into? So I think those are the seeds. I think that's where it starts. Because if they see you, the parent, doing it, then they're inspired to do it too. We do that every night before bed. and. Frankly, I, I'm grateful to my mom because my mom actually saved all of my little golden books from when I was a kid. That oh. were the ones actually from when she was a kid. So a lot of them are from the, the 40s and 50s. So yeah. those are the books we actually read with our kids every night. And they're cool because they're a good length. They're not super, super wordy. And the illustrations are great. Like we were last night, we were reading the 1954 copy of Heidi. So like these are books that kids can really get into and they're simple and easy to digest. So 
if you can get a hold of them, you know, at, at a thrift store or something like that, I think it's little golden books are great things to start your kids with. Love that. All right, let's turn our attention to checking your ego at the door. So why is that important to leaders? Because I think often, you know, if we think we're always right, if we yeah. think we're not going to look at a lot of our own failings and we're, we're also going to create this, this persona that doesn't have any cracks in it and people can't follow that. People can follow imperfection. They can follow real. And I think that's what it comes down to. But often when you're looking at it, you know, follow me because I'm the leader, that's not what leaders do. Leaders follow by working. They follow by working alongside of you, working as hard as you, not asking you to do um, anything they wouldn't do themselves. And that comes from the art of war and it also comes from um, a conversation I had uh, with former CIA director uh, David Petraeus, and he was saying one of the, the generals that he followed the most was a guy that, sure, his chest could have been followed with medals because he earned a bunch of them, but he didn't wear half of them because he thought it made him look ridiculous. And mm-hmm. he didn't say to his people, you know, go, my, go light my cigarette for me because he knew he could do it himself. And I think that sometimes people create resentment for those they're trying to lead when they forget where they came from but also they don't grant um, the ability for other people to be and also show they're willing to work too. Gotcha. And how important is it to follow your passion? Well, I'm sorry. How important is it for you to find your passion versus following your passion? So I was actually going to say by not following it, because like, here's the thing I I think is interesting. and, And I think society kind of sells us a dream on this, Linda is they say, you know, find your passion and you'll never work a day in your life. I don't know if you disagree with me with this, but I think that's BS because I think actually finding what you want to do in your life is, is finding what you like and what you're good at and continuing to work at that thing and work at that thing and work at that thing until you get better at it. There's a, an incredible book um, called So Good They Can't Ignore You by an author named Cal Newport, and mm-hmm. that's the, the concept he really talks about. It comes from the, – the, the title comes from – an interview with the actor Steve Martin when they said, well, Steve, how did you get to be you know, such this great actor? He goes, well, I was just so good they couldn't ignore me. And that's yeah. what it comes down to is they try to put the cart before the horse with passion. You know, they, they want to say, oh, I like this thing. I'm going to do this the rest of my life. Well, if that thing you do doesn't make money or doesn't create opportunities, whatever it may be, then it, it may not be something you could continue to do because it's not economically beneficial. So you yeah. have to look at what am I good at? What is something I can become the best at, and do I enjoy doing it? That's what it really comes down to. So when you look at it, it's finding your passion, which implies you're working at something. You know, you try this job or try that job or try this career or try that career until you find something you like, whereas following your passion to me implies you're, you're kind of chasing this thing you may never catch, whereas when, you, when you're actually trying to um, find your passion, you're working at it. You're, you're doing different things. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, but you can't really follow your passion unless you've already found your passion, right? You got to work at it. You got to you got to do some things. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, and I think that doesn't A come before B. I mean, I, I I'm not quite following here. So what I, I don't what I'm I don't to, I don't I don't think you can just follow a passion, your passion, without knowing what it is. Well, you have to work at some things, and that's that's why yeah. for me it's like I had all these different careers and stuff until I found one I liked. I think often we we have to decide what our college major is at 18. We go to school for it for you know, four to six years, and then you're like, all right, this is what you're supposed to do with the rest of your life. I think that's a really bad plan. One of the yeah. biggest things missing in society right now is, is something that used to exist, uh, and it still does in the trades, and that's the idea of apprenticeships. Working yeah. in a career for a period of time or with somebody for a period of time for, to gain some skill or discern, should I be doing this? So I think what we really need is a revamp in, in how we decide what we want to do for a living. So it's finding your passion, and, and, and my opinion involves an active process of actually trying to find what you're good at, whereas following it, you're chasing something you're never going to catch. Yeah, speaking of about our educational system, I think so few 17-year-olds know what they want to do. So you're throwing them in a college environment, and they're just kind of like going through the motions, kind of dumbfounded. They went from a class of 600 to a class of 30,000 at the university or whatever, and it's just so overwhelming. I think we're doing this like all wrong. I think we yes. should back the clock up maybe at like eight years old, 10 years old, 12 years old, and during multiple checkpoints along the way, find out what that student is 
good at? What are they what are they gravitating to? What are they naturally inclined to do and do testing there's all kinds of job aptitude type tests that you can test, you know, what are you, what are you best suited to do in life, that, you know, out of 200 professions, okay, these following five professions, you'd be great at. They need to do that at like age 8 and 10 and 12. Not say a word and wait till 17 and then the person has to try to figure out what are they going to do the rest of their lives. So a little story, one of my extended family members, I wish she had come to me first, she has a 4.3 GPA, okay? She applied to 10 colleges. All 10 of them got denied. All 10. Oh, my gosh. And the number one reason, in my opinion, I'm, I'm not the administrator, but in my opinion, she puts down, it says major, she puts down undeclared. So if I were the admissions person, I would think, why should I take you when you're not making a deal with yourself as to what you want to pursue? Mm -hmm. So I think it's all messed up. We should be encouraging our young people well ahead of age 17 to figure this stuff out. Well, I look at it too, Linda. It's like, you know, at 25 years old, I was teaching in a high school. And at 27 years old, I wasn't anymore because that was actually my dream was to be a teacher. And I got there and I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is not it. I'm terrified. This is not what I want to do for a living. And I think to realize that in your mid-20s or in your 30s is is a little bit shocking. I think there should be a lot more experience to make some mistakes earlier in life, to to try some things and see what's a fit for your skill set. As well, though, I think we've also kind of made college the be-all, end-all, and I don't think it is. I think there should be – more of a looking at trades, more of a looking at uh, different schools to learn different skills. I just think universities and, and that model, just unless you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer or something like that, not everybody needs to do it. Because I look at it in my, my career um, in PR. Um, my wife went to school for PR, and that's how she learned how to do it. I learned how to, I learned how to do PR by doing it. And right. the, the, I think there's different – there's the theory of something and the practical of something. I'm a bigger believer in the practical of something than the theory of it. Because the theory of it's great, but if you've never done it and you've never applied it, then, then what does it matter? And right. so to me, I, I think we've just put so much of an influence on, on education. I, I come from two parents that um, neither of them went to college, and, and um, my, my dad didn't finish high school and went back and got his GED later on. So I, for them, like going to college is like the ultimate thing. And I look at it, I have two really expensive college degrees that I don't use. So to mm. me, I, I think there just needs to be more of a, a, an emphasis on, you know, finding trade schools and finding different careers and even looking at what do we do with college because it's really expensive and people don't come out learning how to do anything anymore. Right. Well, back in the day, that college degree used to mean something, that you would graduate in June and by September of that same year, you would have a job in your field like a really good job in your field. It was almost like a linear, you know, you do A, you get B. Those days are totally done. So uh, now they're getting very expensive educations and they can't get a job for like one year, two years, three years in that field. And then the other problem is whatever your major was, it may be obsolete by the time you graduate college. Yeah. So it's really hard to predict, okay, where is the market going? What do I need to do to stay ahead of this curve? I mean, when you say recession-proof, I think college kids, they really have to think of five years down the line, 10 years down the line, is the major I'm choosing today, is it going to even be worthy, applicable in the future? So well, even from a, a debt perspective, on. Even from a debt perspective too, Linda, because if you look at it yeah. like, could you imagine if it was easier to get a business loan to start a business as it was to get a $150,000 loan for college right. with no idea that you're ever going to pay it back? We also, it's too expensive and inflated, and right. you know, we would never reward somebody the same way for, for starting a business, which is a little crazy to me. Right. Yeah, and I think, unfortunately, the colleges and universities have taken advantage of all this, quote-unquote, free money and free accessibility to student loans and They've just raised their rates. They've doubled and tripled their rates for no reason whatsoever. It's still the same education. They're not giving you a better education yes. um, at the $25,000 level as they currently are charging you now $125,000 for that same degree. It's, it's crazy. I, it's, I think they've really shot a lot of students in the foot because who can ever pay that kind of money back? I mean, unless you're a professional, unless you're a doctor, lawyer, or one of those kind of fields, the money – 
that graduate would have invested in the economy, i.e. buying a house, you know, the down payment mm-hmm. on the house, now went to that silly college degree that doesn't mean anything. That's exactly what have, I was going to say. And you have no way of paying it back. It's a, it's a mortgage without a house, right? Because and, right. And, and the issue with that is you get somebody that gets out of school at, you know, 21, 22, 24, whatever it may be, and they now have this really high need for income which is not what you're going to have your first couple of years out of school because entry-level positions don't pay like that. So it's yeah. just a really weird position to be in, and it affects all sectors of the economy because they can't buy a car, they can't buy a house, they can't do all these different things, you know, just like you were saying. So it's, it's wide-ranging, and, I, and it, we've, we've kind of been hammering on this a lot today, but I think it's a system that needs some sort of change. Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of professions that do make six-figure salaries, and you don't need a college degree. The trades are one of them, but even something like a pilot, you don't need a college degree to be a pilot. Those jobs are paying pretty darn well, I understand. Yeah. They're 150 k or more. Yeah. So, yeah, look at, I think a lot of people are opening their eyes to that. They're taking different avenues, and of course, we've got the TikTokers and the YouTubers and all that, too, that are making their mark in the world. Good on them for reinventing the wheel. Yeah, it's really interesting because it goes back to what you were talking about before, like what you go to school for, you may never never do, right, because your major may not be needed or existing or – like technology is moving so fast right now, you know, how can they even train for it? Because the people that are developing it, they aren't teaching in schools and they aren't doing these different things. So it's just, it's moving so fast. We just need to look at a different way. Yeah, definitely. How to make yourself <laughs> not be obsolete. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a lot of cancel culture going on. There's a lot of negative things in the press that's going on. It's always a challenge to stay one or two steps ahead of all that. But yeah. we really have to be much more future-minded than we are. I, I know a lot of the Asian cultures, you know, they're always thinking like Toyota and those kind of companies. They're always thinking, where are we going to be in 50 years from now? Where are we going to be in 100 years from now, where American companies, they just think, where are we going to be at the end of this quarter? Because their bonuses are based on this quarter, the end of this quarter. So we've really got to change our thinking with that and have more strategy, have more long-term effects to it. Well, I think part of it, too, is like if, if you're going to go into the big business side of things, part of it's the issue is lobbying as well, because they want things that they'll spend a lot of money to keep things exactly the same and not innovate. Right. Like, why don't we have better electric cars and things like that? Well, because, the you know, the people that that run oil and all these different things, like they'll lose money. So it's like at the same time, like we have to kind of figure out how to handle some of those things as well, because we keep our industry not future minded by spending a lot of money to not keep it that way, if that makes sense. Yeah, Definitely. All right. Let's talk about the right combination to scale your company. What do you mean by that? Marketing versus sales. Well, I think one of the major things is, and this goes back to our conversation about literacy, is there's a confusion of definitions for a lot of people. And when they look at a business, to me, there's really three parts to every business, and that's PR, marketing, and sales. And if Mm -hmm. I had my last dollar, I would spend it on PR because I need people to trust me so that my marketing is actually successful so I can actually sell something. So a lot of times when you're not selling, you should take a look at your marketing program and how is that, how is your marketing working? If your marketing is not converting, then you're not doing the right PR. The problem is people only run a PR program when something bad happens. It should be something you're doing all the time, whether it's going on different media, whether it's writing blog posts, whether it's writing a book, speaking at conferences. Because people have to know you, like you, and trust you to ever spend a dollar with you. And those are also the pieces that you're creating to then be promoted and be marketed. Because you can't sell if you're not marketing trust. So to me, that's the right combination. What a lot of people want to do is they want to get some magical marketing program that gets them leads, and those leads just convert and become become new clients. That's not going to be something that's going to help you grow and scale a business. Brands are built on PR. They're built on belief. They're built on ideas. And if those don't exist, you're not going to be marketing something in two years or five years, whatever it may be, and you're not going to be selling. So to me, you can't skip public relations and have a successful business. So how does somebody who's brand new, just starting their company, you know, the the age-old thought is, you know, PR is going to cost me too much. I'm going to have to spend thousands of dollars, you know, a month, every single month, and I don't have that kind of money because I'm just starting my business. So what are some other avenues other than like hiring a PR agency to help you out? 
Well, there's a, a few things that actually a lot of businesses skip. The one is what I like is what I like to call the small pond strategy. Everyone's a big fish in a small pond somewhere. Um, I grew up in a small town. It's five eighths of a mile in size. Nothing happens there. And there is a small <laughs> local newspaper that goes to every single house in the county on a Thursday. The press okay. day is Tuesday, so if you have your press releases done on a Tuesday, they'll print them on a Thursday. So if you find out what your small ponds are, your university, your local newspaper, your um, rotary groups, whatever they may be, you want to get in those publications because a lot of them actually have online elements, which end up in Google, then end up in Google News. And this is something every single person can do to write a press release, get it in these local ones, and then get it um, in one of these publications. Now, I will say there's a couple of caveats to that. A lot of times people think, well, the press release is the placement. Well, it can be, but the purpose of a press release is actually to get other media, right? Have people read it, be interested in you, and then want to interview you or do something with you. That's one part of it. The other thing I'll say is, like, when you're going to do that, it has to be something newsworthy. Like, is, is there something specific about your business? Is it veteran-owned, women-owned? Is there a special thing? Are you a uh, using a special certain process at your company? Whatever it may be, it has to be newsworthy. It can't just be like, hello, my company exists because nobody cares. These right. need to be something that you can run in local media, and this is the thing that every single person skips because they want the bigger stuff and they want more attention. But if you don't start small and local, you can't go out from that. So if you apply a small pond strategy, you're really going to win. Another really great strategy is helpareporter.com, Haro. And yeah. it's a, a site where sources are writing over there, or reporters and people are writing articles and they're looking for sources. And they have a free level that you can get an email once a day where people are looking for articles and be in those. Now, I will say you have to have realistic expectations. I see anywhere from 15 to 20 percent of those articles actually get printed. So don't think everything that you put in is going to get printed. But for me, those are easy things that every single person can start with and do that are actually going to get them to help move the ball forward. Get your name out there. I love that. All right, my audience. By the way, Jeremy happens to have a book. The name of it is called Unremarkable to Extraordinary. And you don't have to worry, of course, as usual, at the end of the show, I'll put all the links down at the bottom so you can just click through. But meanwhile, just say a sentence or two on what the book is about. So we've talked about my podcast and the conversation I've had. We've talked about leadership. These are a lot of concepts that I've learned from thousands of conversations I've had with um, Super Bowl champions, World Series champion, uh, one of the only four-time Indy 500 champions. And I've learned, like, what really makes somebody extraordinary? Because I think so often we think it's, you know, repeating the same mantra in the mirror five times, whatever it may be. I'm a big believer that it comes from hard work and experience. So that you can take the experience of these people and these conversations, unpack these, and apply them to your life so that you can create your own version of extraordinary. Because I think to think that everybody believes being extraordinary is the exact same thing is, is incorrect. We have, all have our own definition of it, and you can reach your definition you know, through the experience of others. Awesome. All right. Well, Jeremy, I'm going to close out the show in just a few minutes. If you have any last thoughts or anything you'd like to share with the audience, go for it. Well, I just really appreciate you having me on today, and, and I would just say to the people out there, if you want to achieve something, you achieve it by doing it. I think far too often people want life to happen to them when really – you have to go out there, be a little bit ugly, make some mistakes, and be willing to do that. So if they're willing to do that, they can create some success for them. And it may be shorter or maybe long, but you got to work for it. Gotcha. All right. Okay, my audience, if you happen to have missed last week's show, we were talking about staging your comeback with our guest, Howard Brown. And his position was, when life hands you a stage four diagnosis, you stage your comeback. So we talked about life, cancer, sperm banks, his podcast, and a whole lot more. So you can find that right here in the archives at Blog Talk Radio, or you can go to SoundCloud, TuneIn, iTunes, Spotify, or just type it in, The Men's Advocate Show, on your favorite podcasting platform, and it should come up for you. All right, I'm going to pay a quick bill, and we'll be right back close out the show. Men, I have got a special treat for you. You definitely want to get a copy of The Science of Mastering Women, The Real Truth About Women That Will Change Your Life Forever by Linda Gross. She interviewed over 20,000 men to write this book, and she combined 10 years of academic research at UCLA on relationships spanning from the caveman days to the present. And now she has a virtual encyclopedia for men who want to learn everything about women. So jump over to Amazon and get your copy of The Science of Mastering Women 
by author Linda Gross. It will absolutely change your life and it will help you understand women a whole lot better. Go to Amazon, type in Linda Gross, The Science of Mastering Women, The Real Truth About Women That Will Change Your Life Forever. You can get it in paperback. You can download it as well. And after you read the book, make sure you follow her on her podcast and go to Amazon and give her a really nice review and tell her that Fred sent you. Go get your copy of The Science of Mastering Women, The Real Truth About Women That Will Change Your Life Forever by Linda Gross. Go get your copy now. All right. And... We're also uh, publishing the audiobook version now, also on Amazon, and it's at your favorite bookstore, 50 different platforms from Walmart, Barnes & Noble. It's all there, so go get your copy. All right. I want to thank my guest today, Jeremy Slate. Thank you so much for being here. This was a great show. I really appreciate it. And, hey, thank you uh, for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And to my audience, we will see you next week right here on Blog Talk Radio, and you'll be joining us at the Men's Advocate Show. Okay, bye for now. We'll see you next week.